0: Thanks for joining us in our study of the gospel according to Matthew. In this episode, we'll be in chapter 16, going from verses 13 through 28. And I'd like for us to talk about two really important people. In fact, two people that I think are uh, very important to each of our listeners. Now, the first person is Jesus. I would imagine that if you're listening to this series, it's because, well, at least in part, you are really interested in the person of Jesus. Jesus. Well, Matthew 16, 13 to 28, is a climax of Christology in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Now, the reader of the Gospel has been told from the beginning that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, That Jesus is the Son of God should come as no surprise uh, to even the first-time reader of the Gospel. But it's here in chapter 16 that Jesus' identity uh, becomes the topic of conversation with his disciples. As he asks them, "Who do the people say that I am? and who do you say that I am?" Now, I would imagine that a lot of us are really interested in this subject, Who is Jesus? But the other person this text brings to our attention is, well, us. The two twin themes in Matthew sixteen, thirteen to twenty eight are Christology and ecclesiology, that is to say, Jesus and his church. Now, this passage is often read, preached on, and discussed, so of course there's going to be a lot that we can't just include here, but I want to get at the overall idea. Christology and ecclesiology, Jesus and his church, are connected together. As one goes, so goes the other. And we will see that the greater our view of Christ, the greater our view of the church. And conversely, if we can think about it this way, uh, the more lowly our view of Jesus, the more lowly our view of the church and her mission. Now, I stress this direct relationship because the idea is often presented that uh, the greater our view of Jesus, necessarily the, the smaller or the less view of ourselves will take. Now, don't get me wrong, there are times in which we are faced with the grandeur and glory of who Jesus is. And so, we, we say like Isaiah, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am an unclean man in the midst of an unclean people. And uh, my eyes have seen the glory of the King, and so on. But, as true as it is that seeing the greatness of Jesus should make us aware of our own unworthiness and sinfulness, on the other hand, there is a direct relationship Now, pay attention to this direct relationship as I read the text. As Jesus goes up, the church goes up, and as our view of Jesus goes down, so to speak, so the church must go down. Starting in Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "'Who do people say that the Son of Man is?' And they said, "'Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah,' and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, in his kingdom. Now, as I said earlier in our episode, uh, this view presents us with uh, two very important per- people. And of course, the first one is who Jesus is. And this account presents us with a very high Christology. Uh, the, the people, that is the crowds, have their different ideas as to who Jesus is. Uh, we read earlier in another episode that King Herod uh, thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead. Well, apparently, he's not the only one who thinks that Jesus must have some sort of uh, supernatural power because he's someone come back from the dead or is taking on the role of some important Old Testament figure. And the names that are listed here in Matthew uh, as being uh, what the crowd says are some pretty great people. Jeremiah, Elijah, or one of the prophets. And yet, uh, all of these answers are insufficient. Jesus is greater than the all-time greats. Now, in view of the flow of history uh, from the Old Testament, we have this idea that uh, the, the story of God is going somewhere. It's all leading towards uh, the arrival of the kingdom. And the prophets predict that um, before the kingdom arrives, there will be people, there will be forerunners who will come and prepare the people for the coming king. Now, Peter's answer is so great because he knows that Jesus has been preparing people for the advent of the kingdom, announcing its arrival, and yet he knows that Jesus is no mere forerunner. He's not just somebody preparing people for the kingdom. He is actually the victorious and conquering king of that kingdom. That's the basic idea of being the Messiah in many Jewish people's understanding in the first century. It had two key ideas. One is being someone who would conquer, that is, destroy all of Israel's enemies, and then also somebody who would rule over the kingdom. In other words, the Messiah would be kind of like Sir Lancelot going out and fighting the battle, and he would also be like King Arthur, sitting on the throne, ruling over his subjects with justice and equity. But Matthew's gospel uh, reports Peter saying something greater than he's just the victorious and conquering king. Not only is he the Messiah, but he's also the son of God. And as we've seen from earlier, uh, this means something more than he's just the Messiah, but that he is um, God's son and that he is, in some sense, God himself and deserves to be worshipped. Now, all of this is reinforced with what Jesus is said to do. He is described as someone who is building a great structure, and this is best viewed as a temple. And we've been thinking about Jesus being the Messiah, and one of the great texts for that is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And there, God gives a covenant to David. Maybe you'll remember the context. David wanted to build a house, build a temple for God. And at first, uh, the prophet uh, Nathan comes in and says, that's a great idea. Why don't you go ahead and do it? And then he has to come back and say, actually, I misspoke. Um, God says, you're not allowed to build me a house. I will build a house for you. But your son, one of your descendants, will sit on your throne forever, and he will rule, and he will build a temple for me. Well, that text, 2 Samuel 7, sometimes called the Davidic covenant, becomes kind of like a fountainhead. And from there, there's this huge stream of tradition which talks about the Messiah being a uh, a person who will build the temple. So when Jesus is talking about himself as someone who's building a great structure on an important foundation stone, we should uh, see that as tapping into this big idea Jesus is the Messiah, he is the one who will build the temple. And of course, the idea of the temple is the place where atonement is made, where forgiveness can be found, and where the true knowledge of God can be learned. All of that happens with what Jesus is doing. It will not be found so much in Jerusalem, but it will be found in Jesus and in what he's doing. That's where a person can find forgiveness. That's where a person can really find out about what God is doing. Now, I said earlier that the greater our view of who Jesus is in this passage will also mean the greater our view of what it means to be a disciple. Uh, Peter is tied to the person of who Jesus is. Uh, There are these parallel statements. Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus returns the favor in so many words and says, you are Peter. Now, the Greek word Peter uh, is the masculine word for rock, and it matches up with uh, the feminine word for rock, which is the one Jesus uses, of a large stone. Now some people have tried to say that Peter is not this foundation stone, but that is the clearest way, the easiest way to read the text. Um, It seems like he's talking to Peter, in fact he definitely is, and he's saying uh, that Peter is going to have a very important role in the project of building the church. There's nothing inherent about this idea that should rub us the wrong way. After all, we are told in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, uh, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In Revelation 19, we find that that the apostles are the foundation of the coming temple. Their, Their names are written there. Um, so, people often resist the idea of Peter being someone important because they're afraid that it might lead to papal infallibility or something like that. But uh, admitting that the disciples are really important people in the kingdom project, in the building of the church, doesn't necessarily mean that we have to come to those conclusions. In fact, just the opposite is the case. Uh, Jesus is so great that it means that people who are tied to him must necessarily be important. He's involved in a great project, and Jesus, well, he doesn't make junk. He's making a great temple, something really important, and it consists of his followers. It's a grand and glorious thing to be a part of this um, edifice which Jesus is constructing. But although this passage says the higher our view of Jesus, necessarily the higher our view of what it means to be a disciple and to work for Jesus, the converse is also true. This passage also presents us with what we could call a low Christology. And by that, I mean one in which uh, we learn that Jesus is not only the great victorious king, but he also is the suffering servant, the one who has to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be rejected and die. Uh, The idea here is before Jesus gets the crown, he must go through the cross. This would have been an incredible shock for the people who first heard this. And to think of, about a, a suffering and defeated Messiah would have been as contradictory as talking about a married bachelor. How could you have a losing winner? It just doesn't make any sense. But that's Jesus' idea of what it means to be the Messiah. Um, Peter disagrees. He doesn't see how these two ideas can go together. But Jesus insists that uh, to disagree with him at this crucial juncture, to think that there can be the crown without the cross, is not only to be mistaken, it is to be satanic. It's to miss the whole purpose of God. And not only uh, is this God's plan for Jesus, but this is God's plan for all of those who are attached to him. Notice very carefully that Jesus' approach here is not, I'm going to go suffer and die, but it's going to be in a substitutionary way such that you can just kind of stand back and watch and this doesn't affect you at all. Instead, Jesus says, I want you to be my disciple and that means you need to follow me. You don't stand stand off at a distance and simply watch. Now, certainly, Jesus gives his life as a substitutionary sacrifice, dying in our place uh, so we don't have to pay the price for our sin. But it would be a mistake to so emphasize that that we lose what's going on in this passage, that Jesus is suffering as our leader and as our captain. Uh, The way of Christian discipleship is hard and difficult, and we are called to carry our cross so as to eventually find our life whatever situation you're going through, it can be easy to look on difficulties and despair and failure and think that something must be going wrong, that you have departed from God's path for your life. But really, the exact opposite may be the case. It may be that you're going through difficulty and hardship because you were following in the footsteps of the one who went the path of hardship and difficulty. If that is the case, Press on. One day he will come and reward you. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu.